Let us pray. Holy Spirit, breathe upon us now. Open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you would say to us this day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Last Tuesday, I was talking to someone from Down College Station who was describing to me going to the store and finding it essentially impossible to find soap or toilet paper. And I said, huh, that's strange. I don't think that's hit Waco yet. And then Wednesday night, I went to HUB. Walked past the toilet paper aisle, and most of you have seen the barren, empty shelves stretching into the distance. I'm, I'm still, I understand the soap and the bleach thing. I'm not quite sure about the toilet paper, but, but this got me thinking about this very human experience and this very human fear of not having enough. This is what the people of Israel are experiencing in our Old Testament reading. They're journeying through the wilderness. It's dry, it's barren, it's uncultivated. You've got thousands upon thousands of people stopping to make camp, and they suddenly realize there is no water here. There's a radical and urgent gap between what they have and what they need. And I want to ask you to just meditate for a moment. Have you ever had that experience of feeling that there's this yawning chasm between what you have and what you need? Could be physically. Anxiety about having enough food. Will our finances stretch through the end of the year? People are worried right now about the markets and job security. Maybe you're worried about having enough toilet paper. That seems to be a thing. Or, or maybe it's emotional. Right? I'm feeling overwhelmed with sadness or anger or fear or or I can't feel anything even though I know I should. Maybe it's psychological. Uh, maybe it's relational. What I, what I need and what I long for and what I'm experiencing in my circumstances just don't match up. People are already struggling with social distancing. Maybe it's spiritual. Right? Where is God in all this? Is God going to be who I need God to be? Is there a gap there? And maybe some of you are feeling this as we enter this season of great uncertainty with the pandemic, can I handle this? I'm not sure I have what I need. And I'm not just talking physically. If any of those things are an experience you can relate to, then I, this Old Testament reading is for you, for us. Because in this passage, we see two different ways that humans can respond in situations of fear and anxiety, when we feel overwhelmed, when there's not enough. But we also see two different aspects of the way that God responds and answers that fear and addresses that need. So I want to look at each of these briefly, two ways that humans respond when we don't have enough, but also the way that God answers. Reading begins, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now, this is the first thing we have to notice. They're not making this up. 
Okay, the problem is real and the problem is serious. Next to oxygen, is there anything humans more desperately need than water? They don't have any. And they freak out. Our kids and our animals are going to die. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This first human response I want to describe as a kind of unholy protest. They're thirsty, the need is real, but they react with fear and anger. They quarrel and they grumble. Why have you brought us to this waterless hellhole? Do you want, hate us that much? Moses, do you want us to die? Is that what this is about? But notice who they're really quarreling and grumbling with. They're talking to Moses. They address their words to Moses. But Moses answers, why do you test the Lord? Because remember verse 1, it's in obedience to the Lord that they've come to this place. God sent his people to this camping site, into this wilderness. How easy is it when we find ourselves in a situation of stress or anxiety or fear or anger, when we feel overwhelmed, to voice our protest, but imagine that we're not protesting against God? to hide that from ourselves. We complain about it to our long-suffering friends and family. Right? We get angry at other people if we can find someone else to blame. That, that's so-and-so. Maybe we even pray about it. Hmm. But what we don't say is what we so often actually mean, I'm afraid that God is not trustworthy. We don't say, God, why did you bring us out here so you can abandon us to death? We don't say, I'm putting God to the test. But that's what their grumbling and quarreling really is. It's an accusation and judgment and condemnation all at the same time. It's an unholy protest. They think against Moses, but really against God. Verse 7 is going to cap off the story. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now notice how Moses responds. He sees what's happening. He recognizes what their reaction really means. And then Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. God, I have a problem. These people are thirsty and they're ready to kill me over. Right? You can imagine, maybe he is also feeling some need right now. Maybe he's feeling some fear. There's a gap between his situation and what he needs it to be. Not only because there's no water, although that affects him as much as anybody, but mostly he's afraid of the murderous crowd looking for a scapegoat. But look how he responds. He takes his need and his anxiety to the Lord. And I think this is really important for us to grasp, that the alternative to unholy protest is not avoiding any kind of protest. In fact, it might be something more honest and more straightforward. The alternative to unholy protest is a holy protest, or perhaps we could call it the protest of obedience, the protest of trust. 
Moses vigorously expresses his distress. Lord, everyone is terrified and angry and they're literally about to make me dead. What's going to happen here? He's not any less honest than they are. In fact, more because he's addressing God. He recognizes God is the only one who can do something about this. Lord, what shall I do with this people? Because I sure don't know. But when the people ask, why did you bring us out here to die? It's not really a question. It's got a question mark at the end, but it's not really a question. It's an accusation. When Moses says, what shall I do with this people? He knows he doesn't have the answer. He can't solve the situation. But Moses leaves space for God to know something that he doesn't. He asks as if God might want to say something in response that he can't foresee. And of course, God does. Right? You heard the story. God sends water in the wilderness. And the people and their children and their animals don't die. He quenches their thirst. But God doesn't just send water. Right? And I think it would be easy to speed past this part of the story. The Lord could have called up a miraculous rainstorm. It does occasionally rain in the wilderness. He doesn't do that. Right? What he does is something much more strange. And I want to suggest something much more powerful. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Notice the details. God instructs Moses to take the elders with him, the leaders and the representatives of the people, to stand there formally. God says, take your staff. This is the same staff God used to send plagues and devastation and divine wrath on Egypt. This is the same staff that God told Moses to stretch out over the waves of the Red Sea and the waters were split in two so the people could cross on dry ground. And God says, I'm going to stand before you on the rock at Horeb. This is a kind of flash forward to what's going to happen a couple of chapters later when God descends on Mount Sinai and reveals his presence and power. I'll stand before you on the rock. God's going to show up. Some years ago, I listened to a really outstanding sermon on this passage by the great Presbyterian preacher Tim Keller. And he argued that basically what we see in these verses is a kind of courtroom scene. You have Moses, you have the elders as authoritative witnesses, or a kind of jury perhaps. You have God himself standing over against the people, facing one another. This is a judgment scene. It's a formal judgment scene. And you know what's supposed to happen, right? The judge passes sentence and the guilty get what's coming to him. We see this pretty often in the book of Exodus. Usually doesn't go well. But then something profoundly strange happens. God doesn't smite the people with a plague, like you would expect, and like some of them probably expect at this point, the ones who've been paying attention. Instead, God says, I'll stand on the rock, and Moses, you strike the rock of God with your rod. 
with the rod of God. And water will come out for the people to drink. What on earth is that about? In this passage, we've heard two very different human responses to a situation of need and anxious making fear. But now we see God's twofold response. God, in this moment, I want to suggest is doing two things. First, he's showing them the seriousness of their sin. But then second, he's addressing the true depth of their need. First, he shows the seriousness of their sin. Make no mistake, there is an act of judgment happening here. Moses says, you're putting the Lord to the test, and God says, yes, that is exactly what you're doing. In speaking these faithless, unholy protests, in asking questions that don't leave space for answers, you're showing that you've set yourselves up as the judges, and you've accused and passed sentence and condemned me. That's what you're doing, whether you see it or not. The God who set you free from slavery in Egypt, who saved you from Pharaoh's armies at the Red Sea, who provided food in the wilderness last time you complained, maybe you remember. And still, in spite of all that, you don't think this God is trustworthy. After all he's done in your moment of need, you still refuse to turn to him. When God has Moses smite the rock, he's showing his people the seriousness of their sin, opening their eyes, that these Unholy protests are nothing less than an assault and an act of violence against God. That's what they're doing. As if we had said, we can't trust this God to give us what we need, so we have to take it from him. Our acts of suspicion and rejection and blame are an act of violence against God. But it's also an act of judgment in another way. Because think about it, who absorbs the judgment here? Who takes the blow? I'll give you a hint, it's not the guilty party. I will stand on the rock before you and you shall strike the rock. Do you see what's happening? Again, God is showing the seriousness of their sin because he's showing them what it costs to deliver them. Not just from bondage in Egypt, but from themselves. From the chains of their own self-focused bondage to faithless fear. Judgment has to be passed, but the reality is they can't survive judgment. When God brings judgment in the book of Exodus, people die. If they're going to be saved, if they're going to be spared, if there's any hope for these people, then somehow God has to take the judgment on himself. Right? That's what we see represented in this upside-down judgment scene. The judge passes sentence, and the judge accepts the penalty. And isn't that what we see on the cross? When we see the Son of God nailed up naked and bleeding to death, and it finally gets through to us, oh, that's what my faithlessness costs. That's what my disobedience costs. My grumbling and my complaining and my sin, that's what it deserves. The situation is much worse than I imagined. Our rebellion is an act of violence against God, and God accepts the violence because that's our only hope. He's signaling that in this scene. And so, yes, he shows them the seriousness of their sin, but in the same moment, he's addressing the depth of their need. What the people think they need is water, right? Right? And that's true. 
We're dying of thirst out here. But that's not all they need. It's like the woman in the gospel reading who hears Jesus talking about living water and says, man, give me some of that stuff. So I won't have to go to the well and draw water anymore. Rescue me from my heavy work. Rescue me from my fears of what other people think of me, of social condemnation. Meet my need. But Jesus says, no. No, remember a few chapters later in John 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me. Is this to say you have a need that goes much deeper than your physical thirst? You're more desperately in need than that. The chasm between what you have and what you need is wider than you imagine. It's not enough for God to give you water to quench your parched mouths. You need water for your shriveled and fearful souls, for the wilderness of your own hearts. In their disobedience and rebellion, they've turned away from the source of life. That's what they need. They need God to give them himself. And that's what's happening here. God stands on the rock and has Moses strike the rock as if to say, this is what your sin has done, but this is what I want to do in return. The Apostle Paul says this clearly in 1 Corinthians 10. The rock was Christ. He says this explicitly, the rock was Christ. Christ who shows us the depth of our sin, but who also pays the cost willingly. Christ whose side is split open and blood and water pours out to wash away our sins and quench our thirsty souls and to make the barren wilderness of our fear and longing and our uncertainty blossom with hope and trust. To make us start to live for the first time. He gives them himself. In these days, in these lives, of fear, of need, when we experience loss, when we don't have the answers, we have a choice to make. What prayer of protest will we pray? Do we blame God and we reject him? Do we put the Lord to the test? Or do we cry out honestly and vigorously, but also in trust that if we've come to this place in obedience to God's commandment, then the God who has brought us here has not abandoned us. That he goes ahead of us into the wilderness, into the chasm, into the place of our deepest need. Maybe he shows us that our need is deeper than we thought. But at the same time, he reveals and he addresses the true depth of our need. And he shows us the depth of his love in this place. Could that be why he brought them here? To reveal the depth of his love. He opens his heart. He gives us himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.